In our copy of the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 9 in your copy. You know, when you hear the name Mother Teresa, it conjures up all kinds of images in our minds. Images of poor, neglected children. Images of this wonderful woman reaching out and helping these children in the name of Jesus. Images of a woman modeling the values of servanthood and compassion and humility so authentically that she challenged the whole world with her example. Now, who was this woman, Mother Teresa? Well, she was born August 27, 1910, in what today is known as the country of Macedonia. She became a nun in 1928 and went to Calcutta, India in 1929. When she arrived in Calcutta, she began by teaching in a school for well-to-do girls, a very upscale school. And she taught there for many years, but she developed an increasing burden for the needs of the masses of of people that nobody cared about and nobody wanted that she passed every day in the streets of Calcutta. And so finally in 1946, she resigned from the school and began spending all of her time in the streets of Calcutta caring for the poor and the sick and the dying. One article said that she was washing and feeding and clothing and sharing human warmth with those whom no one else cared about. She received a number of awards, including the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979, and she donated all the money from all these awards to her missionary work. But you might ask, well, why, did a, why would a woman do this? I mean, what motivates somebody to do this? And she answered that question in, to her biographer, in her biography, and here's what she said. And I quote, she said, you must tell people what brings me here. Tell them that I am not here for the work. I am here for Jesus. All I do is for Him. I am not a social worker, a teacher, a nurse, or a doctor. I am a religious sister, and I serve Jesus by serving the poor. My life has no other reason or motivation. This is a point that many people simply seem not to understand, end of quote. Now, Mother Teresa, folks, had a conviction. She had a conviction that the needy people in our world and the vulnerable people in our world and the people in our world that nobody else cared about, that these people were near to the heart of God. She had a conviction that they mattered to God, that they were special to God. And that's what we want to talk about today as we use an incident from the life of King David as a springboard to talk about this. Now, I didn't plan that we were going to be talking about this from David's life the exact weekend we were doing disability awareness. It just really honestly happened almost by coincidence, but it's wonderful the way it worked out. So let's look together. Chapter 9, 2 Samuel. And David, uh, a little bit of background, remember David now has expanded the borders of Israel to include much of modern-day Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and the Sinai Peninsula. But there's a domestic issue that he's very interested in, and here's what it is. Verse 1, David asks, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? You remember, Saul was his predecessor. Jonathan was Saul's son. Jonathan was David's friend. He had, he had defended David. He had loved David. And so in 1 Samuel 20, David made Jonathan a promise that when he became king, he would always watch out for Jonathan's family. So now David wants to know, is there anybody left? Well, nobody knew for sure, so they summoned this guy in named Ziba, who was a servant of Saul. 
And, and Zebo was asked, verse 3, by the king, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? And Zeba said, Well, there is still one son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. And the king asked, Where is he? And Zeba said, He is at the house of Machir in Lodibar. So the king sent and had him brought to Jerusalem. Now, this friend, this guy Zeba, informs David that Jonathan has one surviving son. And the fellow's name is Mephibosheth. But he also tells David two very important additional facts about this young man. Number one, he tells him that he is permanently disabled. Verse 3 says he is crippled in both feet. Now, how did he get to be this way? Well, if you flip back to chapter 4, keep a finger in chapter 9, but look back at chapter 4, and you're going to see. Verse 4, chapter 4 says that Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when this happened, and the way it happened is that after the Philistines beat the Israelites and killed Saul and killed Jonathan, his nurse, this little five-year-old boy's nurse, was afraid that he would fall into the hands of the Philistines and they would perform all kinds of atrocities on the king's grandson. So she picked him up, it says here, and she began to flee. But as she was hurrying to flee, apparently she dropped the boy. He fell and became crippled. And his name was, excuse me, was Mephibosheth. Now, we don't know exactly what the nature of the injury was. Did she drop him on his spine and he had a spinal cord injury? Did she drop him on his neck and break his neck? Did she drop him on his head and did he have lasting neurological damage? We don't know. But we know as a result of this injury, this five-year-old little boy became crippled and unable to walk the rest of his life. Now back to chapter 9, the other thing we find out about him is that he's in hiding. We're told that he's staying in Lodibar, which means literally in Hebrew, a place of no pasture, a barren place. And the reason why Mephibosheth was living in such a barren place is because he was afraid. He said, well, what did this poor child have to be afraid of? Well, he was afraid of David. We need to understand, folks, that in the ancient Near East, it was customary for a new king to exterminate every living relative of the king that he deposed. 1 Kings chapter 15, for example, Basha, who assassinates the king of the northern kingdom and takes over. The Bible says as soon as he began to reign, Basha killed Jeroboam, his predecessor's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam one person that breathed, but he destroyed them all. And so the reason that Mephibosheth had made himself scarce is because he's convinced if David ever finds out where he is, he's a goner. David's going to kill him. Well, anyway, he comes to Jerusalem. Let's pick up verse 6. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, came in, he bowed down to pay honor to David, shaking in his sandals, I'm sure. And David said, verse 7, Do not be afraid, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table." And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now, this is a Hebrew way of saying thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. A little long, a little cumbersome, but that's basically what it is. Now, this was a very noble thing that David did. 
to take this man from living like a squalid fugitive and instead of pronouncing his death penalty, instead to restore him to being a respected member of society again and to give back to him all the land of King Saul. This was a noble thing, but folks, it wasn't good enough. Not if you're really in touch with where this man is. If you're really in touch with his life situation and if you're really in touch with the way he's living and his disability, this isn't good enough. Because the man can't go out and farm the land. He's crippled. He can't go out and plant it and plow it and weed it and harvest it and store crops in a barn. There were no tractors. There were no planters and harvesters and balers and belt lifts to assist people. It all had to be done by hand. This poor man is disabled. He can't do that. And so David not only shows nobility here, but he shows compassion. He connects with where this man really is. And look at the sensitivity he shows. Let's pick up and finish. Verse 9, And then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson back everything that belonged to Saul. Now you and your son, Ziba, and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops for him so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Ziba, verse 11, said, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands us to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own children. What a wonderful thing David did. He assigned Ziba and his 15 sons and his 20 servants to work the land for Mephibosheth. And he says, Mephibosheth, you don't have anything to worry about from now on. I will take care of you personally. You will never be in need again. And the fact that you're not able to walk won't make one bit of difference, son. I'm going to see to it you're taken care of. This is compassion. And this is what David showed this young man. Now that brings us to the end of the passage for today, but it leaves us with the most important question. And you know what that question is. Ready? One, two, three. So what? Right. So what? Lot, it's wonderful. We're really excited David did this. It was really nice that he was a man of such compassion. But what difference does this make for my life here in the 20th century? I think it makes a lot of difference for our lives as Christians. And I'll tell you how. I was looking for a definition of compassion, and I looked in the dictionary, but I didn't like their definitions, but I found a definition from Mother Teresa. I loved her definition. Listen to her definition, and I quote, Compassion means trying to understand and share the suffering of people. It's a smile, or showing some simple kindness. It's small things that make up compassion. That wonderful? It's just the little things that show you care and you understand and you realize where someone is. That's compassion. Now, compassion for people in need is a major issue with God, my friends, because God is a God of compassion. God's heart is inextricably linked with the, the vulnerable and the weak and the exposed and the poor and the physically infirmed of our world. You cannot read the Bible and not get that point. Psalm 82, God says to us, defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. This is what God says to us. And God promises if we will do this, that He will honor and reward our efforts. He will bless our lives. Deuteronomy 24, listen, when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf of grain, it drops to the ground, do not go back and pick it up, God says. 
You leave it there for the poor and the stranger and the widow and the orphan, the people in society who are so vulnerable. You leave it there for them. And when, he goes on to say, you take olives from your trees or grapes from your vine, do not go back over the tree or the vine a second time, but leave the excess on the vine for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. Listen, and God will bless you in the work of your hands if you will show this kind of compassion for people in need. Conversely, whenever we as His followers fail to show compassion for people in need, God becomes a very unhappy camper about it. Exodus 22, You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress them. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan, for if you afflict them, they will cry out to Me and My anger will be kindled against you. Now, there's a position you don't want to be in. God's anger kindled against you? I don't think so. I don't want to be there. And how do you get there? Well, what did God say? One of the ways to get there is to refuse to show compassion to the vulnerable, the weak, and the needy in society to afflict them and oppress them. You can get there real quick with God. Folks, I don't know how the Bible could be much clearer, do you? That the downcast, the powerless, the helpless, the weak, the needy, the infirmed, and the vulnerable are the object of God's special care, God's special concern. But just in case you need one more proof, let me ask you to turn with me into the New Testament to the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 25. And if you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 702. Page 702 in our copy of the Bible, Matthew 25 in your copy. Here Jesus is telling a story. And something He says in this story is very much of importance to what we're trying to say here. Listen to part of His story. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry... And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, <laughs> when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? When did we ever see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or see you needing clothes and give you clothes? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And Jesus will say to them, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, for people that maybe the rest of the world had no time for, no, no interest in, but you did it for them, look what he says, you did for me. Now, unless I read this wrong, I think the point is that Jesus takes this issue of compassion for people in need so personally that as far as He is concerned, caring for people in deep need is identical to caring for Jesus Himself. If I understand it right. Now, if all of this is true, what does this mean for you as a Christian in the 20th century? And what does it mean for us as a church family in the 20th century? Well, it means, friends, that as Jesus' followers, we need to take compassion and caring for people in need very seriously because Jesus takes it very seriously. Now, we'll all admit, I think, goes without saying that the greatest need any human being has in their life is the need to have assurance about immortality, the need to know that after you leave this world, where are you going? 
the need to know that you're assured of heaven and your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life. That's the greatest need any human being has, no matter how things are going with them in terms of money and lands and houses. That's the greatest need we all have. And so as a church family, we're dedicated to helping people with that need. That's a priority for us. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a real and personal way, and you're not sure yet it is possible to know what's going to happen to you after you die, I'm here to tell you that the Bible says Jesus is able to give us an assurance of immortality that will withstand any operation, any surgery, any hospital, any disease, the grave itself, and that we would love to share that with you. That's something you need to have. That is the foundation of building any healthy life. But you know, friends... This is where so many affluent suburban churches like we stop, with only ministering to the spiritual needs of people. And for the first 10 to 15 years that I was here as the pastor at McLean Bible Church, the truth is that that's where we stopped. You say, well, why, Lon? Why why did we stop there? Frankly, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I was the problem. You're looking at the problem. You're looking at the reason why we stopped there. I had a theological problem. I wanted to make sure we didn't drift into becoming a social gospel church where we were so busy caring for the physical needs of people and the emotional needs of people that we completely ignored the spiritual needs of people. But but you know what? In addition to my theological problem, I also had a stupidity problem. I was too stupid to understand and appreciate the depth of human pain and suffering that exists in our world. I was too stupid to realize how important it is to take a holistic approach to meeting the needs of people's lives. I was too stupid to appreciate how spiritually powerful a simple act of compassion or a simple act of kindness offered to people in Jesus' name really is. And then, God sent my little girl Jill into my life. She's seven now. And as many of you know, Jill is severely retarded. She's medically fragile. She's almost totally helpless. And I have to tell you, folks, Jill rocked my life. I mean, there I was going along just fat, dumb, and happy, just having a wonderful time with three healthy boys, and Jill came into my life, and she rocked our life. And I began to learn for the first time in my life what it felt like to be vulnerable and exposed and helpless and weak and needy. I began to appreciate for the first time in my desperation that what I needed was not just the Bible and prayer and Scripture memory. Now, I did need the Bible, and I did need prayer, and I did need Scripture memory, but I needed more than that, and so did my family. We needed also those people who reached out to us with compassion, with mercy, with human kindness, with practical help. We had people who would come over and babysit so Brenda and I could go out maybe to a movie. You know, you take for granted going to a movie, but not if you have a child like Jill. We couldn't leave her. There was no way to go out. We had people who came to the hospital when Jill was in the hospital and would give us a spell just so we could go home and take a shower. You don't know how much a shower means when you've been in a hospital two days with someone and you haven't had one. We had people who would give our boys rides to church youth group activities, to school activities elsewhere, because we were in the hospital with the Jill, or we were home and couldn't leave. We had friends who, who would help us with our medical bills the first three years of Jill's life, our out-of-pocket medical expenses. Over and above insurance was over $50,000 out-of-pocket. 
We had people who would come over on Sunday morning and would help Brenda get Jill ready for church. For the first two years of Jill's life, my wife Brenda never got to church because there was no way she could get up and get Jill ready and get herself ready and get here. And I was gone. I was here with you guys. And so we began having volunteers coming over, getting Jill up, getting her bathed, getting her dressed so she could get to church. We had people watch her when she got here. We had friends who would rejoice with us when we rejoiced. I mean, the smallest little thing that Jill would learn to do that normal people with normal children would take for granted that we had taken for granted with our older children. We didn't take for granted with Jill. And we had friends who would rejoice with us over the tiniest little thing. And then when we got bad news, and friends, we got lots of bad news. We had people who would weep with us. And Brenda and I would go to these meetings at the Fairfax County Public Schools because Jill was in a little preschool with lots of children just like her. And we would go to these parents' meetings and we would sit there and we would, we would look around the room at all of these parents, mostly single moms, because, you know, 80% of marriages where a special needs child comes in to the marriage break up. That's not my figure. That's the figure of the National Epilepsy Foundation. Mostly single moms and a few dads. And we would look around the room and we would see the desperation and the exhaustion and the fear and the hopelessness and just the sadness in people's faces. And, and I would sit there and think, well, where is the church? I mean, what church in Washington, D.C. is deliberately reaching out to these families with compassion and with the love of Jesus Christ, meeting them where they are, caring for them like the people of McLean Bible Church had been caring for us, using that as a platform to bring these parents and bring their children into a vital connectedness with the living God, with Jesus Christ. And, and, and there was no church doing this. There was no church. And I would walk out of these meetings and I would... I, all the way to the car and all the way home, I'd say to Brenda, you know, it's, we have, churches ought to be doing something about this. Church, I mean, I can't believe churches aren't reaching out to these people and doing something. And finally, one time, I think out of frustration, Brenda said to me, well, if you're so concerned about it, why don't you and McLean Bible Church do something about it? And so that's why we have access ministry. Because I took Brenda up on her challenge. And I said, you're right. If no other church will do something about it, then we'll do something about it. Now, we don't know what we're doing, but we'll learn as we go. We'll figure it out as we go. And God will show us as we go. Now, thank you. Now, it's important for me to say this to you, that the reason we have access ministry is not because this is a, some kind of secret way for me to get the needs of my daughter met. Friends, you need to understand the needs of my daughter were already being met by the people at McLean Bible Church. The reason we have this ministry is because I believe that those children and those parents and their siblings matter to God. I agree with Mother Teresa. These people are important to God. And somebody needs to reach out in the name of Jesus and extend care and love and compassion to these people because if Jesus were here, that is what He would be doing. Check it out in the New Testament, folks. Who did Jesus spend almost all His time with? Disabled people. Check it out. That's where His heart was. And, and you know, um, i got to tell you, it's not just about people with special needs and disabilities. I was down in Washington, D.C. This is why we're so passionate about beginning ministry in the inner city, down in Anacostia, down in Southeast, working with Ricky Bolden. It's why we're so gripped by this need. Because you talk about some helpless, vulnerable, exposed people. You go down into Southeast Washington, and you go down and talk to those children down there, and you see what they're living with. I was in Anacostia High School Wednesday. 
getting a, a, a tour from Ricky Bolden to Anacostia High School. I went in the lunchroom during lunch with all the students. You say, well, how many other white people were in that cafeteria, Lon? Nada. Nobody. Just me. And Ricky said, well, over there is this gang. They own that wall. And, and this gang, they own that wall. And this gang owns that wall. And he took me over to one gang member and said, pull up your sleeve. And this young kid pulls up his sleeve and half his forearm is missing, shot off in a gun battle. A kid in high school. I met another young girl, 14 years old. Her father was killed on the streets of Washington. And a few years later, just last year, her mother, her mother's boyfriend, broke in the house, slit the throat of her mother, slit the throat of her older brother. She was hiding under the bed or he'd have killed her. And when the boyfriend left and she crawled out from under the bed, her mother was lying in the pool of her own blood trying to dial 911 on the telephone. But uh, it was too late. The mother died. The brother died. The girl has nobody. She lives with an aunt. And Ricky Bolden said to me, Lon, who's left to care about this girl? You see the potential in this girl? Who's there to help this girl reach her potential? You want to know why we're passionate about inner city ministry, friends? I'll tell you why. Because God cares about that girl. That's the answer. Jesus Christ cares about that girl. And we, as His representatives and followers here, we better care about that girl because that's the heart of God. And thousands of other boys and girls just like her. This is why we have ministry to nursing homes. This is why we have recovery groups for people damaged by alcohol and drugs, for people who are struggling to get over incest and abuse in their homes. This is why we have support groups for people who are newly bereaved and newly divorced and who are dealing with cancer and other life-threatening illnesses. This is why we have a food pantry where we give food away and a clothing exchange where we give clothes away and why we have a counseling center at reduced rates because when people are vulnerable and needy, that is where the heart of God is. And that's where we better be. Now, I hope this is the kind of church family you want to be a part of. Because God has helped me realize that this is the kind of a church that we must be if we're going to please God and if we're going to make the impact on Washington, D.C. that we want to make. This is the kind of church we have to be. And I want to challenge each one of you here who claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you to become a Mother Teresa. Not, not to join a, a, a convent, not to go to Calcutta, but to do what she did. To look around and see the crying and needy masses of humanity all around you. And to get engaged in ministering to people, to get out of yourself and get engaged in ministering to people in the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, life's too short to waste it just making money. Life's too short to waste it just piling up stuff. God wants you to make an eternal difference in your life. God wants you to use your life to make an eternal impact. And how do you do that? Well, Mother Teresa put it as simply as I know how. She said, you transcend self and you serve others. That's how you make an eternal impact. You get out of yourself and you serve other people. Now, we can create all kind of opportunities for you to do that here at McLean Bible Church. But you've got to make the decision whether you want to do it. That's your call. You know, we have a wonderful opportunity inside of your bulletin is a pink form that says, are you looking for amazing ways to love others and make an impact? This is a form all about how you can volunteer to work with people with disabilities here at McLean Bible Church. And uh, we can use anyone. You say, well, Lon, I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an OT. I'm not a speech therapist. What can I do? I don't know how to do anything. Well, friends, you know, people with special needs have fingernails. Can you do manicures? Are you a manicurist? 
People with special needs have hair. Are you a hairdresser? People with special needs still live in houses with plumbing. Are you a plumber? People with special needs still have automobiles that need to get fixed. Are you a mechanic? Uh, people with special needs do water therapy. Are you a lifeguard? Shoot, friends, we can even use lawyers to do this. I'm serious. You're a lawyer? We can use you. I'm serious. And let me tell you something. The blessing will be yours. It won't just be theirs. It'll be yours. I tell my children one of the things that irks me the most. I say to them all the time, you know what really bothers me? Is when I do something for you and you don't appreciate it. Boy, that irks me. Let me tell you something, my friend. You will never do something for a child with special needs that they don't appreciate it. You will never do anything for the family of a child with special needs that they don't appreciate. See, these people don't have folks standing in line to help them. They don't have people standing in line to watch their children, to give them a break. And even the smallest piece of human kindness that you extend to these families is profoundly appreciated. There is no joy, trust me, in the world like walking out of that Sunday school class on a Sunday morning here when you've taken care of these children or walking away from a Saturday breakaway when you've given parents a six-hour break or doing anything. There is no joy that comes like walking away from that and having a parent or even a child say, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. You don't know how much this meant to me. Now, you'll never get that kind of joy from stuff. Stuff doesn't bring joy. Stuff's only a pain in the rear. You've got to fix it. You've got to take care of it. You've got to protect it. You've got to insure it. Stuff doesn't give you joy. But serving people will. And that's my challenge to you. You want some real joy in life? Follow Mother Teresa's advice. Transcend self. Forget about yourself. And start serving people who need that help desperately. And God will give you a joy that nothing in this world can match. And God will use you to make an impact for eternity with your life. Friends, life's too short to waste it. I hope you won't waste yours. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for talking to us today about something very near to your heart. People. And particularly people who are weak and vulnerable and exposed and needy and helpless and powerless in some cases. And people whom the world just passes right by. God, give us a biblical worldview, not a Washington worldview. Lord, don't let us focus on the movers and the shakers and the muckamucks and the people with power and authority. Those are not the people that are really important to you, nearly as much as the people who are needy and vulnerable. And people the world doesn't care about very much. They have a special place in your heart. And so, Lord, may we as a church family mirror your heart. And my prayer is that up in heaven you'll punch one of the angels in the ribs and go, Hey, look, see that church? See that church down there? McLean Bible Church? Now, that's a church that really understands my heart. That's a church family that's getting it right. I'm proud of that church. Father, that's who we want to be. Help each of us to transcend self and serve others in the name of Jesus. And thank you, Lord, for talking to us today. May our lives be different because we heard from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.